0: Hello and welcome to Wisdom of the Crowd, a podcast miniseries brought to you by the Bertelsmann Foundation, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, and Are We Europe? In this series, we get together to discuss the future of transatlantic relations. From technology to economics, we take a closer look at the most pressing issues impacting the transatlantic alliance. I'm your host, Riley Munn, and this sixth episode of Wisdom of the Crowd is all about China. From the race to define the use of artificial intelligence to securing critical materials around the globe, the issues on the horizon are both new and daunting. There has long been a debate about whether China is a partner, competitor, or a rival. But it has become increasingly clear that policymakers in Washington and Brussels will have to accept that the country may be all three a partner on existential global challenges like climate change, a competitor in trade technology and shaping the contours of the 21st century's economic landscape, and a rival from the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea to Ukraine and the Korean Peninsula. In this episode, we have two guests who will help us make sense of the relationship that will define the century ahead. If you're listening and interested in giving your take on these questions, head over to Range, our transatlantic forecasting platform, where users and experts can chime in on the outcome of future events. Currently, there are a number of China-related questions ready for forecasting on Range. Forecast today at rangeforecasting.org. So without further ado, let's get into it. Our first guest, Jennifer Turner, has served as the director of the China Environment Forum at the Woodrow Wilson Center for over 23 years. She is an authority when it comes to the geopolitics of clean energy, having worked on dozens of initiatives focusing on the environmental challenges facing China, particularly on water, energy, and green civil society, examining the opportunities and pitfalls of tighter, clean, green cooperation between the U.S. and China.
1: My name is Jennifer Turner. Really happy to be here. I direct the China Environment Forum at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Wilson Center is a foreign policy think tank that was created by Congress in 1968. And I've had a great time over the past 24 years in putting on meetings, exchanges, and doing research on all kinds of U.S., China, environment, energy, and climate topics. We've also done work on plastic waste. And yeah, I get to work with Government NGO business and researchers in China and talk about common challenges and potential solutions.
0: So a big buzzword right now, or buzz term um, when it comes to US and EU-China relations, is critical minerals. Could you tell me a little bit about what critical minerals are and why they are so important?
1: Well, critical minerals, they're they're a select group of minerals that are seen as essential for helping us achieve the clean energy economy. So creating wind turbines, electric vehicle batteries. And we need these technologies so that we can decarbonize our economy and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so just part of the list that's most commonly stated is copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, and a half dozen rare earth elements. I think the list varies between 50 to 60 minerals and the demand for them is growing massively as countries have made ambitious promises to do more electric vehicles, wind turbines, solar panels, I should insert in here that some of these critical minerals are also used for magnets and other components and weapon systems. So it's both an economic, climate, and military security kind of metal, therefore critical.
0: The U.S., EU, and China are racing to secure access to these resources that you've mentioned. How is this playing out on the international stage?
1: I don't know if it's really a race because China's already won in many ways. They control something like 60% of the worldwide production of critical minerals and 85% of the processing capacity. So, you know, in terms of productions, they've invested in mines all over the globe, particularly in Southeast Asia and Africa, but it's the processing where they get countries to ship them the metals or they mine them and ship them to themselves. And- produce these products that, you know, we need these, these batteries. And should should point out it's not just the electric vehicle batteries in your phone and computer and mine and everyone else listening to this podcast. For 30 years, we've been consuming computers and other electronics produced in China at reduced cost than it would have been if it had been produced in the United States. And so we've benefited from China's dominance in the critical mineral sphere by eyeing their stuff.
0: I know a few months back, there was news that China was considering some embargoes for some of their critical minerals. Could you talk a little bit about that and why they were considering that?
1: That's been the big security concern, both for economically and militarily, that if China decides at various times, maybe they're having disagreements with the EU or the US, that They're just not going to ship these products that they've made from the critical minerals out to the world. And that's a huge challenge because, again, it's not just for clean energy technologies, but the batteries, for phones, etc. That's why the EU and the U.S., we are getting in the race. I hear I said China won, but, you know, the U.S. and EU are investing heavily, particularly in, in friendly countries around the world to try to gain more control of mines and processing Talking about doing some of their own processing in their countries. But this is a good point to insert here that mining is a very dirty industry. There are international standards for many types of mining, but when it comes down to it, it it can be very dirty. I mean, both the damage to, I mean, the actual land, to runoff into waterways, to air pollution, and then even thinking of things like, shall we say, smelting. So Indonesia holds 22% of global nickel reserves. And for many years, Chinese had come in and invested, and they were shipping nickel to China to be processed. Well, six years ago, Indonesia issued an export ban on nickel because they decided they wanted to process it in Indonesia to create jobs and to make more money. So the Chinese smelting companies were actually happy to comply because in China, since 2014, they've had a war on pollution, and so there's been more pressure within China on coal and a lot of dirty smelting and other production industries. So, six years ago, when the Indonesians said we're not shipping it to you, so the Chinese brought their own smelters to Sulawesi was the the big area where a lot of the investment came. It's a very poor province that welcomed the jobs, not too unlike the China that I got to know back in the 1980s that. Having this kind of industry produces lots of air pollution, lots of dust. And um, I was reading a New York Times article where they were interviewing a gentleman there who said, you know, the air is not good, but we have better living standards. You know, the smell of richness is the toxicity in the air, right? This is what we're seeing all around the world, though, is that as countries are demanding to process in-house, and so that's bringing just more pollution to their doorstep.
0: The U.S. and Europe have been outspoken about their need for critical minerals to facilitate a green energy transition. What are China's motives for securing these minerals?
1: China actually leads the world in renewable energy and electric vehicles, by far. I mean, China has something a little over 50% of the world's electric vehicles. Xi Jinping, the president of China, announced a couple of years ago that by 2030, they were going to stop producing internal combustion engines and china's pivot towards electric vehicles was a global game changer everyone listening to this to this podcast knows that electric vehicles are popping up on our own streets china you know they have that kind of power that as they pivoted the world pivoted with them which many see as a good thing but the demand for the minerals in electric vehicle batteries is huge. By 2040, something like lithium will have to increase by 4,000%. I mean, it's like the numbers are, are staggering, which means you know, China is well-placed, but even China alone probably can't meet that demand. So if we are going to lean on critical minerals, they will have to be more mining. Or let's think about this. What about all of these products that have critical minerals in them already, that have been tossed. I mean, there's a a lot of talk, a lot of environmental groups are bringing up the question of urban mining, right? That, I mean, you could go into the landfills, but better yet, you set up programs where you're going to recycle these materials. That is something that a lot of environmental organizations are complaining is an undertapped area of both policy and technology in the United States. It's a new kind of supply chain right? You got you to gotta deal with garbage, but that's okay. I mean, that, that's a good possibility. We know that there are companies like Apple and other manufacturers who are looking into alternate technologies that don't depend on the critical minerals. And I think that that is also an area where the EU and the US could try to accelerate ahead to develop new kinds of metals. But again, even the not so sexy sounding urban mining and recycling, is something that merits a lot more attention than it's being given right now.
0: Yeah, that's super fascinating. I know critics of like, electric vehicles, for example, often talk about the scarcity and the depletion of these minerals and what that looks like in the long term now that the demand is so high. Is that, in your view, a solution to that?
1: Could we kind of recycle our way out of this problem? Probably not, because... The demand for critical minerals is really, really high. But there are some innovative, another innovative solution I want to mention that that, I, that I've heard about in China, where if you have an electric vehicle, you can go up to a electric battery station and they take out your rechargeable battery. They take it, they plunk in a recharged one. They might say, well, how many miles do you want to go? And they give you one that fits and then off you drive and they continue charging it. And that makes me think that one strategy that we could work to develop in the U.S. would be to making sure that, you know, that we're helping to develop more of these rechargeable batteries and the infrastructure to support it.
0: I'd love to go back to something you mentioned earlier about the struggle for countries to start doing some of that production and mining in their own territories. And I know famously in the past few months... Sweden has been coming up a lot for that. And the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council had their meeting in Sweden and kind of this push to have a mine in Sweden that could generate some of these critical minerals on EU territory. But there's been a lot of pushback and there's a lot of hurdles that the EU has had to actually even open that mine and to start beginning some of that work. So wondering if you could mention a little bit some of those hurdles to beginning those processes in the EU and the U.S., when they've relied on china for so long
1: it is going to be challenging because both the eu and the us have very strict environmental standards there's the nimby principle of course not in my backyard that no one wants a lithium mine behind them and and so that's why i think that we're seeing a little bit more of the us and europe looking to latin america to you know because they they're rich in lithium but to be honest a lot of these critical minerals even the ones that we call rare earth metals are actually pretty common, but it's just a question of like whether you want to invest the resources to mine them sustainably, so you have truly like green lithium, shall we say? That that could create a new kind of market. I mean, it would be a little more expensive, but to create a global standard that also puts pressure on China and other countries that are producing critical minerals not cleanly, <laughs> to maybe comply. But it is challenging. I mean, again, China. Dominates the global market. But there are new markets that are opening up that could open the opportunity of maybe better regulation.
0: I'm wondering if you think that there's a risk of conflict between the US and China over these minerals. Do you see that coming up in the near future?
1: We're not going to go to war or I think have any kind of faintly military conflict around critical minerals. We still depend on China's production of them. The Biden administration noted that even though we're trying to diversify our critical mineral supply chains, we're not going to be able to cut China out of the critical mineral supply chain for us. While we want to decrease our vulnerability, it's not going to happen. There are plenty of other tensions in the relationship, but I don't think critical minerals are going to push us over the edge. It's just a, it is a source of volleying insults at each other, but it is a concern that the arguments over critical minerals, you know, necessary for decarbonization, is creating a little bit more bad blood in in conversations about climate change action among EU, US, and China.
0: What can the US and EU do to better engage with Beijing to tackle climate challenges together?
1: During the Obama administration, that was that was the pinnacle of bilateral U.S.-China climate and clean energy cooperation because it was a priority for both countries. We had lots of exchanges, not just at national, but at subnational. NGOs have for decades been working with China on clean energy issues, but so a lot of activity. And then in 2014, we signed a bilateral climate agreement. And that bilateral agreement paved the way for the Paris Climate Agreement. When China and the U.S. come together on climate, it helps move the world. And the EU also, at the same time in those years, was improving their relationship on climate relations. So a little bit of cooperative competition on climate. So a race to the top. Let's look at what's happened since the Obama administration. When Trump came into the office, the first thing he did was pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, cutting off all gov-to-gov dialogues on it. COVID crisis also didn't exactly encourage conversations because the world was focused on that. Uh, Economic, the global economy is also struggling these days. So there's a lot of distractions from the climate issue. But note that during the Glasgow climate talks two years ago, the US and China signed a Glasgow declaration saying that they were going to restart climate talks. And then a few months later, right when we were about to get going, Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. And so Beijing has halted all kinds of dialogues. And so we're still also kind of stuck right now. If we can't talk directly to each other, I mean, we have seen that the EU and the US have been really working harder on their bilateral climate cooperation and dialogue. So not just on critical minerals. And I think that in all honesty... One of the best things that the U.S. and EU can do to engage Beijing on climate change is actually U.S. and EU need to fulfill and go beyond our Paris climate commitments at home. We also need to comply with what all of us agreed to at Glasgow and at the last climate talk to fund more decarbonization and adaptation infrastructure in the developing world. We need to walk the walk. (laughs) Instead of just talking, right? If we accelerate our climate action, that that in effect does put some pressure on China. It puts us in a better position because the climate talks need leaders. And in the interim term, you know, the US and the EU really accelerating their climate action could make a big difference.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Now for our final question, something we like to ask all of our guests. When you take a look at the race for critical minerals around the world. What is keeping you up at night? What do you see the next five years looking like?
1: Climate change is no longer the ticking time bomb. It's exploding all over, and we're feeling the impact particularly around water, the extreme weather, the heat waves, creating droughts, violent rainstorms, hurricanes, typhoons. I mean, the economic cost of these disasters, you know, most notably are going to become a food security issue. I mean, as well as flooding our cities. So I think that that's what I find really worrisome. But to kind of spin this into a positive to going back to the U.S.-China cooperation on food and climate could also and should include climate adaptation in the food and agricultural sector. Because we know that climate change impacts are going to keep coming, even if you know tomorrow everyone stopped <laughs> emitting uh. Coal fired power, et cetera, but that, which we know isn't going to happen. But so just thinking of ways that, like, you know, high nighttime temperatures, like in China, there was a huge heat wave and a lot of livestock and fish died. I mean, in some places, like the electricity goes out from the heat waves and then fans and piggeries and cow facilities turn off and the animals die. Both the US and China and the EU are, are suffering huge economic costs. I mean, just looking at the ag sector. Yeah, it keeps me up at night that climate change is exploding and worrisome that the EU and the US and China aren't finding opportunities to work together. And, you know, I think they are out there, but Critical Minerals is probably not the area.
0: Our second guest today, Teresa Fallon, is a renowned security expert. Teresa's current research is on EU-Asia relations, maritime security, global governance, China's Belt and Road Initiative, and great power competition. She has testified to the European Parliament Committee on Foreign Affairs and Subcommittee on Security and Defense, and she has briefed members of the U.S. Congress and other U.S. government institutions. Teresa is founder and director of the Center for Russia-Europe-Asia Studies in Brussels.
2: My name is Teresa Fallon. I'm based here in Brussels for about 16 years. Previous to this, I lived in Beijing for four years and then Moscow for five and a half years. And before that, even London for five years. So I've been really focused on Europe, Russia and China relations for quite some time, long before it became fashionable. And because I lived in Russia and China back to back. I've been really interested in these relations and also the transatlantic relationship, how this all fits together. So I I describe myself as a dot connector.
0: So to understand China on the world stage, we need to understand what is shaping China domestically. With that in mind, can you talk to us a little bit about the people and factors that define China today?
2: I think China is going through a very strange transformation at this point. They're coming out of COVID, so is the rest of the world. But many economists expected this type of revenge spending to happen, and it never really happened. Uh, It might be postponed or could be a type of PTSD after the horrific lockdowns that uh, people in China endured. And the, the landscape is very complex. The political landscape is complex. The economic landscape is complex. It's it's slowing down. The rest of the world has kind of moved on a bit, but the rest of the world is also struggling with the post-COVID-19 uh, landscape. But in addition to that, Beijing has tightened the screws on a lot of foreign companies. So there's been an increased risk to do investment there. When I lived in Beijing, it had this incredible feeling of positiveness. Every year since the Cultural Revolution, life was getting better for people. So now we're in a period where life is not getting better. And we see young people graduating from university. And in the People's Republic of China, the PRC, it's such a competitive society. And, you know, they work so hard. They uh, they study so hard. And there's a very high suicide rate for those who feel that they're not competing appropriately And after all of this, they graduate and they can't find any jobs. And so this year, they had some interesting photos of graduates in their gowns with their diplomas laying in the street like they're dead or a zombie. There's a huge expectations gap. Life isn't getting better for this young generation. You have all of these various threads, and Xi Jinping appears to be leader for life now. uh, And that means that not much is going to change. So we've seen with his leadership, that security is more important than economics. So in in one sense, he's almost killing the, the goose that laid the golden egg. And a lot of um, countries are considering de-risking. Yes, it's a process. It's going to take time and it's very difficult to do. But this also makes it more difficult uh, for China to prosper if companies are not going to invest there right now. In addition to this complex domestic, we have the international as- aspect and kind of growing assertiveness in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the narrative of in regard to Taiwan. Xi Jinping has said, be prepared by 2027 to be able to invade Taiwan. They don't want to have to do that, but they hope that they can do it peacefully. So to th- their narrative is that they're bringing it back into the fold. But in reality, historically, the Chinese Communist Party never was in charge of Taiwan. So you have two schools of thought here. The people in Taiwan have witnessed what happened with Hong Kong. And that has really caused them deep concern about the narrative of, you know, one country, two systems. They don't really buy it because they saw how the system has evolved in Hong Kong. So all of these issues have come together and it's increased risk assessment in regard to China. And it's very unclear where the future is going. Anyone who says that they know what's happening in China, I, I would, you know, take that with a a grain of salt. It's very difficult right now.
0: I was wondering if you could speak a moment about Xi Jinping as a person and and how his presidency of China has has altered the country and their trajectory. I think Xi Jinping is really a fascinating person. There are really no biographies about him. And
2: he has been turned into, you know, like a There are hagiographies about Xi Jinping. For example, when he had his first trip abroad, it was in Iowa and he stayed with an American family and they they put him in their son's room. Their son had gone off to college and the room had Star Wars posters and action figures. And just imagine Xi Jinping was sleeping in this room. It was his first experience in the US. And since then, some Chinese business people have bought the house. And it's turned into a place where Chinese tourists go and visit. They visit this house where Xi Jinping slept on his first trip to America. So, I mean, it was really, you know, there's this feeling about him that it's almost a a cult of personality. So there was a saying under Deng Xiaoping, we cross the river by feeling the stone. So you go very carefully, very cautiously. You're not sure you can't see. So you touch with your hands or your feet. But Xi Jinping is like, we're here you know we're on the stage and we're a, a global power and he has promoted the belt and road initiative which is international he has promoted the gdi which tends to replace the belt and road initiative the global development initiative there's the global security initiative and there's the gci the global civilization initiative so he's full of these international initiatives and if you notice all three of those have global in it so it's very far ranging and ambitious on his part so i think he feels that china has worked hard they're now a big player on the international stage and you know they feel it's their time so i think that it's a big departure from previous leaders and we've seen an erasure of some of history he's kind of painting his father back into some of these paintings in museums transforming the narrative and you know he is as big as Mao, if not bigger than Mao. So no leader has been able to pull so much power together as Xi Jinping. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say about Xi Jinping that's really interesting because he does have this political sense. He really promotes anti-corruption campaign. He has an anti-corruption campaign and that makes people like him. And that's kind of a populist move. And different than any other leader, different than Deng, different than Mao, they never purged people that were loyal to them. But Xi Jinping has purged people that were loyal to him, saying that they had corrupt practices. So this is also a big difference from past history.
0: Can you take us through the recent evolution of Chinese assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific and beyond?
2: Xi Jinping has made it very clear that China has to be ready by 2027 and that, you know, he doesn't kind of couch it in very soft language anymore. He, he just said we would like to Taiwan to, you know, come back peacefully, but if not, we will we'll make it happen militarily. And you have this high unemployment rate, a lot of young people unemployed, and there seems to be special offers now to join the military. And, you know, with the one-child population, most parents wouldn't want their kids to go into the military because it's high risk. Their children are kind of their future um, social security plan, and now they're offering a lot more money. So you have a lot of unemployed youth. You have the military actually offering more jobs. And some are wondering, is this like a social stability mechanism, or is it a sign that they're gearing up for something far more serious? So- I would say that tensions in the region are deeply worrisome. We see penetration of Taiwan's airspace, maritime space. It's regularly occurring and increasing dramatically. I was in Taiwan in June and, you know, there were huge complaints about how many penetrations of air and sea space were taking place. And, you know... In the region, Japan is a big trade partner with China, and we've seen Japan almost double their um, defense spending. So it's not just US China tensions, it's China's behavior that's kind of changing the perception in the region and the threat perception. Australia joined AUKUS, uh, this Australia UK US grouping. That wouldn't have happened several years ago. Australia was a big trade partner with China, so it's difficult. These countries are big trade partners, but then they they turn to security from to the U.S. and they do that because of the heightened tensions in the region. And we can only say that you know Beijing created this problem themselves by being so assertive and maybe misreading the the landscape. Maybe they they did it too soon. Maybe they should have waited ten more years until their economy was stronger. But it's really a situation that they, they had a huge hand in crafting.
0: How have the U.S. and EU reacted to these new tensions and this new assertiveness from China? Well, the U.S.
2: definitely sees the relationship through a security lens as well as an economic lens. And I would say the EU tends to see it through an economic lens only. But there has been a bit of a wake-up call with the war in Ukraine because, you know, their overdependence or over-reliance on Russian energy you know, if you don't have a pulse, <laughs> maybe you couldn't, you know, take that learned lesson and apply it to their overdependence on Beijing or Chinese markets. So I think COVID also was a wake up call because simple masks were weaponized. You know, China wouldn't send masks. The, the EU sent tons of, of aid, including masks and personal protective equipment, PPE, to China. And then in return, China, you know, was weaponizing masks saying, please give us this or charging outrageous prices for things that were really shoddy and and not well-made. And so I think that was a real wake-up call about over-reliance on equipment from China. So there's a big debate. always. There's 27 EU member states. Everyone has a different point of view, a different economic relationship with China. We see smaller countries like Lithuania, the Czech Republic, countries that have a memory of the Soviet period, really clearly seeing that China and Russia are in the same basket and they see it as a threat to them. Whereas other countries within the EU have, you know, high dependency on trade with China. So Germany is kind of a little more skeptical, depending on what type of industry you have. So I would say in Germany, it would be the chemical industry, BASF, the car industry and Siemens. They have the chancellor's ear and they tend to have more weight in the conversation. But now we're seeing almost a transformation on electric vehicles in Europe and Europe's electric vehicles are going to be made in China because Europe has more of a free market approach. And only recently under the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, under the Biden administration, they are trying to give incentives for green technology to be built in the United States or to at least near short, say, in Mexico. And the other thing that's going on in all of this is the chip war. So The US advantage on the international stage is their high level of technology. And one way they can slow down China is to kind of make it more difficult for them to get these high level semiconductors. And they need support also from Europe. So ASML is a company uh, in the Netherlands, which manufacture these giant fabs that manufacture the the semiconductors, so they have been persuaded not to export these machines to China any longer. So this is causing some problems for China, and some industries are even saying it's difficult for them, like Western companies in China, it's difficult for them to source high level chips in China. So it's slowing down supply chains, but China has been a very strategic thinker and they've invested all over the world. And even though they're good at making certain level of semiconductors, they're not able to make the most advanced. They've been given a lot of money to kind of improve the chip industry, but it hasn't worked. There's been a lot of corruption. The money has disappeared and they haven't gotten what they wanted out of this. So this is a big problem for them. And so the U.S. is kind of getting them where it really counts. Chinese people are hardworking. They've been studying at MIT, Stanford. There is no reason why they won't be able to move up the the chain on this, I think. But for the time being, they're not able to. Traditionally, Europe's approach, in my view, has been to benefit from the tensions between China and the U.S. and to arbitrage that to their favor. And China is always looking to weaken the transatlantic alliance and to drive a wedge in it. They don't really think they're going to get Europe in their camp, but what they need to do is neutralize Europe. So as long as Europe is neutral, they're happy. And also Europe will be an important tech piggy bank for them. So the technology that they cannot buy from the U.S., they will buy from Europe. So it's really important for the U.S. to get the Europeans on board with this approach. And if the economy is not doing so well it might be harder to get buy-in from some european companies who feel the pain of not selling this equipment to china my impression is beijing is sending a lot of you know sweet talkers over and saying hey you know we need you to help us reform and there's still a lot of uh, economic opportunities in china and don't listen to those americans you know have your strategic autonomy why follow you know washington's lead you should think for yourself we have in some cases, 27 different voices on China. So it's very difficult to pull them all together to come up with a clear policy. We're seeing a lot of travel by uh, European officials and leaders to Beijing and the stories aren't coming out very positive. And also, you know, there was a real charm offensive going on just prior to the Biden administration coming into office, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment. So Beijing had been negotiated for about seven years And under Merkel's presidency of the rotating uh, European leadership of the council, she really tried to push this over the finish line before she left. It was done right at the end of December. And it was sending a signal that Europe wanted to have closer economic relations with China. And the fact that that just didn't pan out with the sanctions and counter sanctions on European members of parliament shows that, you know, China does make some really bad mistakes.
0: I'm curious if you could speak more about China's approach to Taiwan. How would you assess the probability of a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan within the next five years? Or is invasion not even the correct word to use here?
2: That's a really good question because there's uh, Admiral Davidson, it's called the Davidson Window, and he assess that it would happen far earlier than many analysts like to to say. Others would say that right now, you know, we are in a constant war and, you know, this information war. So trying to get this narrative, you know, control the international narrative. They've been doing it on social media in the West, publications, journalists, their own news channels. So it's really fascinating that it's on many, many levels. So when people think of security issues, they tend to think of just military and invasion. But there are many ways to do that. And they can squeeze them economically. Taiwan has about 30% of their economy is dependent on trade with the PRC. And the current government has offered incentives to try to help these companies return to Taiwan or to invest in other places. So they've been able to reduce it by about 10%. That's a pretty dramatic change. And it's painful and hard to do, but they feel that they must decrease it. That still means they're about 20% dependent. But Taiwan is such a fascinating story because um, some have called it the silicon shield. So the most important high-level semiconductors are manufactured by TSMC in Taiwan. So like 90% of the most advanced semiconductors in the world are manufactured in Taiwan. So Even though Beijing tends to be risk averse, that's a real temptation, isn't it? Because that could transform so much. So you have the first island chain, second island chain, third island chain. So if if they had control of Taiwan, that would change their whole blue territory and they could actually choke South Korea and Japan just by not letting energy exports go there. So oil exports, if they could slow that down, that would really hurt those economies. So that's one aspect. But the, the temptation to control the world's semiconductors, that would really be a strong temptation. Also fulfilling his historical narrative of bringing Taiwan into the fold. You know, So I think that maybe she perceives this as what he needs to do to be the best leader to even be better than mao to bring taiwan in i don't know what will happen i think that there's a lot of speculation on this i go to a lot of conferences and i've never seen people so concerned they're really heightened concerns about taiwan you know no one thought putin would do what he did in ukraine and you know she has said quite clearly this is what we're going to do if if they don't you know come peacefully will make it happen. So as the old saying goes, if you want peace, prepare for war. Deterrence, deterrence, deterrence is the most important aspect of all of this. And people have told me, you know, there are various narratives of what could happen. And there are some small islands that are very near the Chinese coast. So some have speculated maybe they would just take one island and it would be like demonstrated as a win and that the U.S. really might not be able to do much about that. And so then the U.S. would lose credibility because they are not protecting and delivering security. But others have said if they if they actually did that, if they bothered to take an island as a demonstration, they would actually make every other country in the region terrified of their military assertiveness. So it could be self-defeating just taking one island. In the past, I think they would always perceive that Taiwan is far away. But if anything should happen in that region, you wouldn't be able to send any sort of uh, trade and that will hurt Europe. So if you want to just kind of frame it under a trade lens, that will just paralyze trade. It will have international implications and it's not going to just be like, oh, who cares about Taiwan? Let's throw them under the bus and, you know, let's carry on with our relations with China. That won't happen. It will be very difficult to, to continue trade as usual the whole status quo will change. CSDP, Common Security Defense Policy, we see some some EU member states sending ships, for example, the first time in 20 years, Germany sent a ship to go through the South China Sea. It's one ship, yes, but I think it sends a signal that they care and that they're interested in the law of the sea, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and that They might not represent all of Europe, but they do represent important business interests or countries that have important business interests in the PRC. I think that there has been a sea change in views on China. We've seen it kind of slowly evolve in 2019 when this EU-China paper was first published, describing them in these three-basket formula. And since then, with COVID, even before COVID, we saw, if you look at Pew Research, There was a negative impact on perceptions towards China, and it's been constantly going down ever since accelerated by COVID-19. So I think that there's a great deal more skepticism towards Beijing. They've lost a lot of goodwill, frankly, and Europe is kind of going through a transformation themselves. Europe might be trading oil and gas dependency on Russia for green energy dependency or green goals with China. For example, solar panels, electric vehicles, a lot of the green technology that they need to promote their green transition will mean an increased dependency on China. So, some analysts are saying, why are we rushing into this approach? Maybe we should have it more moderated and create our own industries in Europe since we're promoting this green transition. Maybe we should give it a little more time to build up our own green tech inside Europe, but it will be hard to replicate the low costs that are in China. Uh, Nevertheless, you know, there's no one doing cost-benefit analysis. There might be a lot of um, polluting in in the creation of these batteries in China that the Europeans aren't reckoning with. But we'll see how this actually plays out. So I I feel that we're in a green backlash now in Europe because there is a huge cost for that. And uh, in democracies, the public, you know, they vote. And if they're not really happy with what politicians are coming up with, people tend to vote their pocketbooks. Nevertheless, we saw a terrible hot summer, fires in Greece, Spain, you know, uh, there are reminders constantly of climate change and that we really do have to act on this. So this will require painful trade-offs and it will cost money. The U.S. needs more burden sharing or burden shifting towards Europe. Europe really needs to be able to take care of their own neighborhood more. The U.S. is never going to abandon Europe. They are an ally, but since they have a growing threat Uh, in the Indo-Pacific they need Europe to really kind of step up and do more and what are the priorities for Europe is it the green technology is the military there's going to be a lot more demands on their budgets and where is that coming from especially when the economy is slowing down so these are huge issues that governments have to tackle and it's going to be a tough few years ahead I I believe and uh, we need enlightened leaders to help guide us through this tough period. And of course, we have what I call PTSD. So in Europe, there's a post-Trump stress disorder that everyone's deeply concerned about. They don't know. I mean, should we invest all our eggs? Because the Biden administration is very pro-transatlantic relations. We might never see a more pro-transatlantic president ever again. I don't know. If we have a U.S. president that might not be as invested in the transatlantic alliance or U.S. kind of saying we're going to turn inwardly, you know, this will affect priorities as well. So we're in for a tough ride. Right now we have a very pro-Transatlantic president and I think administration, I should say, and we should try to make the most of this, get some ironclad agreements uh, to support each other and work on a green agenda together and help each other's economies I think that that is a way forward and hopefully a quick, peaceful negotiation to the ending the war in Ukraine. That's going to be, I'm afraid, a long war. So there are a lot of strains on the European economy, especially, and it's going to be tough. We always need to keep a window of opportunity open to cooperate with China on key areas like nuclear proliferation, uh, pandemics, climate change. but. We also have to be wary of becoming overly dependent on China. And this will include a de-risking strategy. And this will be a process. It will take time. It's not something you can do overnight. So the terrain has become far more complex. There will be some pain. And that's hard to sell to publics. So we have to have leaders that make clear priorities. And I think that working together in a transatlantic alliance You can get more done because of the pure weight of the the relationship. Nevertheless, we need to keep communication open. I think there are real threats taking place. And it's not just militarily. We see disinformation. We see economic coercion Uh, in Europe. We saw that Lithuania has experienced that. And this era where many member states in Europe say, we don't want to have to choose between the U.S. and China. Well, I'm afraid that China is asking them to choose.
0: That brings us to the end of our sixth and final episode of Wisdom of the Crowd. Thank you again to our guests, Jennifer Turner and Teresa Fallon, for sharing their expertise on transatlantic relations with China. And of course, a huge thanks to our loyal listeners for sticking with us throughout this podcast series. We've had a good ride together. From technology to trade, democracy, and geopolitics, we covered some of the most pressing issues impacting the transatlantic alliance. And we hope you enjoyed the journey as much as we did. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Range, Range is a crowdsourced forecasting platform focused on issues critical to the transatlantic relationship, like China policy, technology, democracy, geopolitics, trade, and economics. Try your hand at forecasting by signing up as a forecaster at rangeforecasting.org. We'll put this link and other relevant links for this episode in the podcast description. Wisdom of the Crowd is produced by the Bertelsmann Foundation, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, We Europe, and Awe Studio. Sound design for this episode was done by Stefano Montali with editing by Kirill Hartog. Research was done by Daniela Rojas-Medina and Anthony Silberfeld. The podcast artwork is by Tamara Tasic. And this series is hosted by me, Riley Munn. Make sure to follow us on social media at the Bertelsmann Foundation to stay up to date on our latest content and analysis. And visit our website at bfna.org for more information on our work and mission. See you next time.